This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. As you know, this year we are traveling across the Jew-SA, visiting 12 places around the country with fascinating Jewish stories. On this episode, producer Josh Cross and showrunner Courtney Hazlett head to Louisville, Kentucky. They learn about the bourbon industry's surprising Jewish history, check out the bagel scene, and so much more. There's a lot to distill into just one segment, but we think this one will go down easy. We hope you enjoy it. When you think of Kentucky, what pops into your head? For me, it's the Derby and the fried chicken and bluegrass music and college basketball and, of course, bourbon. What doesn't come to mind? Jews. I'm a native Louisvillian, and my family has been here since at least 1895, when my grandmother Bessie was born here. We were one of two Jewish families in the whole town. I don't ever remember a time that I was picked on, bullied, or anything like that. The brothers were very committed to their Judaism, and interestingly, they all lived in these small towns in Kentucky and were intimately engaged in their communities out there. The Jewish community in Louisville in the 60s and 70s was tight. I would say like any community, it is diverse within the community. There are Jews that live across the entire city, working in all walks of life. Even though we're in Louisville, Kentucky, it's an area that to me resonates with Jewishness. This is a membership lodge register for the Mendelssohn Lodge. So the first entry is from 1st of July, 1860. So this is the very beginning of the second B'nai Lodge to open in Louisville. There was already one called Harmariah Lodge under, this is the International Order of B'nai We'll get to all these voices later. But I want to introduce you to that last one first. I am Dr. Abby Glogauer. I'm a curator of Jewish collections and Jewish community archives here at the Filson Historical Society in Louisville, Kentucky. Showrunner Courtney Hazlett and I met Dr. Glogauer on our first stop in Louisville. After she walked us through the giant old Beaux-Arts-style mansion that houses the collection, she led us to a room where she had prepared a cart full of books, photos, newspaper clippings, and other items for us to see. If you really want to get into like the early history of Jewish organizational and communal life here in Louisville, this is some really fun stuff. On this episode of Across the USA, as we visit Louisville, Kentucky, we're going to start with Dr. Glogauer's Cart of Fun, wind our way through the bourbon trail, and end up in a place that will really blow your mind. Wilmington, Delaware, gonna find a jelly bear Looking for a dreidel in the cradle of the heartland Lots to see in Lakewood, Jersey But is the man a shepherd's down in Louisville, Kentucky North, South Carolina Looking for lots in a country diner I can say we're on our way All across the USA So there was a big enough Jewish community in Louisville in 1860 that it could support two B'nai B'rith lodges. Who exactly were these Jews? Mostly German-Jewish immigrant businessmen who created this organization to come together, to network, to combine resources, to enact philanthropic projects 
They're all obligated to fill out this membership register. And what it's interesting, they put their name, their age. So this guy, Samuel Strauss, is 31 years old. I reside in Louisville. I am by occupation a merchant. Most of these guys were in commercial trade, married. I have three children. I attest that I'm in good health. And the reason they do this is before the modern social safety net state, where there's things like unemployment insurance, or there was nothing like this in the 1860s. So if somebody got sick and they were a member of this order, if they were sick, if they had a business catastrophe, if horribly they died, the B'nai B'rith Lodge would provide financial benefits to the family. We have here a membership entry from a young Samuel Grabfelder. By the late 19th century, he's become a very wealthy and influential liquor wholesaler. Mm -hmm. Joseph Rothsfield. Yeah, Rothsfield. Who's 22. Max Oppenheimer, who's Mm -hmm. 32. And it's merchant, 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 merchant. As Courtney and Dr. Glogauer noted there, a lot of these guys were merchants, which back then was kind of a catch-all word for entrepreneurs. They made things out of nothing, launched businesses and reinvented themselves. And you can draw a straight line between some of these Kentucky merchants and the bourbon you might drink today. My name is Max Shapira, and I'm executive chairman of Heaven Hill Brands. I am Kate Latz. I am a co-president here at Heaven Hill, and we are at the Louisville offices of Heaven Hill Brands. He's my dad. She's my daughter. (laughs) (laughs) We've been in business since 1935, Friday the 13th, December 13th, 1935. So we're now into our 87th year of being in business. My grandfather, immigrated from Lithuania in the late 1800s. He settled in a little town called New Haven, Kentucky. Even today, it's a rural part of the state of Kentucky, but back in the late 1800s, it was a very rural part of the state of Kentucky. He started off with a pack on his back. Business became a little bit better, and he got a horse and a carriage, selling the same kind of notions to households. That business became a little bit better, and I guess there was a little capital that was put away, and he opened a junior department store in New Haven. He had five sons. When those sons became of age, generally in the early 1920s, they were sent out to open similar junior department stores, one of which happened to be Bardstown, Kentucky. That's where my dad was sent. At that same time, two things were going on in America that we need to keep in mind. Prohibition banned alcohol sales from 1919 to 1933, and the Great Depression began in 1929. Fortunately for the Shapiras, their stores still did well, since people still needed 15-cent socks and $12 wedding suits. Pre-Prohibition, Bardstown was a center of the bourbon industry. There were probably 35 to 40 distilleries within about a 10-mile radius. So there were a lot of people who had been out of business for a very long period. And when 1933 became a reality, people wanted to get back in the business. So a group of individuals who had the technical expertise to make good whiskey and wanted to get back into the business, they came to my dad for some capital. And the capital, the original amount was $15,000. 
That doesn't sound like a whole lot today, but in the middle of the depression, that was a big time amount of money. And you were starting a business in the depths of the worst economic conditions ever in the United States. After about 18 months, those individuals who had all the technical expertise came to my dad and said, we have some personal financial difficulties and we're either gonna have to sell the whole venture and ultimately, I guess the family huddled together and they said, well, why not? And for another $25,000, now it's $40,000 in total. Again, a giant sum of money. The family took over the entire process not knowing a thing about business. As we sort of jokingly say, they didn't know a barrel from a box. Since bourbon is clearly in Max's blood, I knew he was the right person to ask. What's the big deal about bourbon whiskey? This is one very unusual industry that really harkens all the way back to the earliest days of the Republic. Remember, George Washington himself had a small distillery on his estate in Mount Vernon. The American whiskey business today is just part of the culture, the history, and the heritage of the country. And what makes Kentucky so key in the production of bourbon? Grain in abundance, climate, perfect for aging the whiskey that was made, limestone water with the kind of taste enhancement that provided to the uh, production process. Those are the three great factors that we had for making the whiskey. And we had another advantage right over here. You got the Ohio River. It goes right downstream towards Missouri, connects in with the Mississippi, and it goes all the way down Memphis and other cities until they got down to New Orleans, which was a port city, and then it went other places. There was bourbon made on other parts of the United States, but the whiskey that was made here because of those factors that I just mentioned made it taste just a little bit better, a little bit smoother, a little bit more of that sweetness that you get from the char of the barrel. Then Kentucky became the center of the American whiskey business, the bourbon business. 95% of all the bourbon is made here in the state of Kentucky. The Shapiras are the preeminent Jewish family in bourbon today, but despite their long tradition, there are Jews with ties to the industry that date back even further. In fact, there was one particular name that kept coming up with everyone we talked to. There was an individual by the name of Isaac Bernheim, an immigrant from Germany. He came to the United States, started off life as a peddler. He came to Paducah, Kentucky, and became an accountant in a whiskey trading operation. This was in the 1800s now. They weren't making whiskey. They were trading barrels of whiskey. He eventually, with his brother, Bernard, moved to Louisville, bought the Pleasure Ridge Distilling Company, and started a distillery. His brand that he founded was a brand called I.W. Harper, which still exists today. Dr. Glogauer had told us about I.W. Bernheim earlier that day. You know, his name was Isaac Wolf Bernheim, 
you couldn't name your brand that. It was like too German, too Jewish. He transposes the IW to Harper. What could be more like white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, frontiery than that? Bourbon is synonymous with Kentucky, and so it's very tied in with the economics of the region. On one hand, we have no choice to love it because we've created it that way, that it's our thing, that people come here to experience it. So we've kind of manufactured <laughs> our own obsession with bourbon, but I think it is something that ties us back to roots that go back to frontier, like grit <laughs> and craft, and that this was something that Jewish people had to get in on. It's a big industry here, not just the production of the bourbon, but touring the distilleries and learning about bourbon history. Dr. Glogauer pointed out that there were Jews in other aspects of the bourbon industrial complex and pulled out a different collection of more recent photos and newspaper clippings for us to look at. This is the David Bass photograph collection that was donated to us by his grandchildren. There's this whole other story about liquor, which is the distribution story. And I think it's not as, like, sexy, maybe, from a craftsperson point of view, but it is no less important. The Louisville Wholesale Liquor Company, also a Jewish family-run business, also comes into creation at the end of Prohibition. David Bass and his family ran this distribution company, so here he is. Coming out of Prohibition, if you want to get into the liquor business, you need some startup capital to kind of buy a distillery, which is what the Shapira family was able to do, moving from, like, clothing and dry goods into this new thing. But there were a lot of Jewish-owned pharmacies here in Louisville. Every neighborhood would have like a pharmacy on the block. And during Prohibition, the one legal way you could get liquor was as a prescription. So these were places that actually had a line to selling booze through Prohibition. So after Prohibition, they were particularly well-poised to kind of get into the business of selling the liquor. And this was kind of the story in the Bass family. So here they are in the 1930s, kind of starting to build their business. And it grows throughout the 20th century. Oh, I just love these photos. Here, these are like the drivers and the staff. The Bass family who donated this, I mean, they're the grandchildren. One of them is a Louisvillian by the name of Jonathan Wolfe, and he's a really uh, talented and important composer. Jonathan Wolfe seemed like an interesting character. So Courtney and I reached out to him, and it turned out he was in town. He even invited us to his house. My name is Jonathan Wolfe. I was born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky. My grandfather, Dave Bass, was an extraordinary man. He did a lot of philanthropic work. He was, by trade, a pharmacist. But at some point, he started a very small wholesale liquor distribution company. He had two daughters. One was married to my father, and both of the son-in-laws worked for him at Louisville Wholesale Liquor. 
I have fond memories of hanging out down there, maybe in the summer when there's no school as a kid, and just kind of seeing how it all worked. Louisville in the early 70s was a segregated town. It was designed and built that way. So the Jewish community and the black community did not have a lot of interaction. But at Louisville Wholesale Liquor, most of the warehouse folks were black. And the owner was Jewish and his son-in-laws were Jewish. And it was a little microcosm of Louisville there where we interacted. And I remember going down there and hanging out with, uh, I think he was the warehouse foreman, a guy named Curtis Harris. Just that morning, Dr. Glogauer had shown us a newspaper clipping about Curtis Harris. So this is from, I think, the Courier-Journal, September 23rd, 1965. Liquor company names Negro Warehouse Head. They're talking about the appointment of Curtis E. Harris and that he is going to be the superintendent of the warehouse at the Louisville Wholesale Liquor Company. He was the warehouse foreman, a guy named Curtis Harris, who was a jazz enthusiast. He loaned me a very rare vinyl record, Oscar Peterson Solo, S-O-U-L apostrophe O. Changed my life. These early fuzzy memories of Louisville Wholesale Liquor, I was probably 10 or 11 years old. Curtis Harris also was responsible for me meeting a guy who I only knew as Mr. Washington. That's right, Washington. <laughs> who was the pianist and organist accompanist at a church in the West End, which is where most of the black folks lived. And this is an all black gospel church. Mr. Washington became kind of a mentor to me, taught me to play and accompany gospel music. He would play piano, I'd play organ, we'd switch off at a church on Sundays, deep in the West End, where no white people ever went. But on Sunday, it was okay, for this scrawny little Jewish white seventh grader to go down there and play with this gospel church. And it was a great learning experience for me. And those musical sensibilities stayed with me still to this day and affect the way that I play music. Now, as Jonathan hinted there, you can't talk about Jews and Blacks in Louisville in the 60s and 70s without talking about race relations. This was the era of integration and forced busing to public schools. Lots of people we talked to had stories about that time. Sarah Klein-Wagner, I am the CEO of the Traeger Family JCC and the Louisville Jewish Federation. Um, I'm a native Louisvillian, and my family has been here since at least 1895, when my grandmother Bessie was born here. I am not 100% sure when her parents arrived. You know, my memories from the beginning from busing were, I was a fifth grader at a school I had been at since I was in kindergarten, everyone knew me. I remember becoming friends with a girl named Diane that I was really close with, and then the two of us played a prank and she got in a lot of trouble and I didn't. They kind of pulled me out in the hall and said, you need to be careful. They were telling me who I should play with and who I shouldn't. And she actually got paddled 
which was a thing in Louisville, Kentucky in the 1970s, that left an impression on me that has never left. So you know, I've carried that for a long time. Why would those teachers who knew little Sarah Klein treat me different than they treated someone who had just arrived at our school? You know, I think Louisville is a complicated city and we have a lot of healing to do right now after, after the past few years. I think there's a lot of history of people working together. There were a lot of Jewish, especially women, that were proponents of busing and wanted to integrate the schools and stood. I mean, there are stories of uh, Susie Post and many others standing in front of schools or standing um, side by side to allow kids to get on buses and do it safely. In the early 70s, my town, my school, became an epicenter of controversy concerning racial desegregation in the schools. I was a junior high student at Seneca, which was both a junior high and a high school crammed into a concrete box, and racial tensions were high. It was probably more than my little mind could truly process. A lot of animosity, a lot of really bad behavior by grown-ups related to busing, and that, of course, spilled over into our schools. There was a lot of adversarial, we'll call it hatred, between whites and blacks in general, and Jews were a subset of the white community. Now, this was in sharp contrast to my experience on Sunday mornings at that church, where nobody seemed to care that I was this scrawny little white kid. I'm not proud of this story. It was a Monday, and I'm at my lockers, and there were certain social rules at Seneca Junior High School. You know, go anywhere without your posse. You stay in a group. There are certain bathrooms and floors you just don't go on for safety reasons. And somehow I got separated. And I see these high schoolers, these huge black kids. I mean, they seemed like they towered over everybody walking towards me. I thought, okay, well, I'll just step to the side. They'll pass by and then I'll go to lunch. And then one of them pointed right at me and said, that's him. We need, we need to talk to him now. And I just froze. It turned out these four guys were trying to work up a doo-wop version of the Bill Withers song, Lean On Me, which the day before the gospel choir had sung in the church. The entire church was uplifted by the power of that song. And this one kid had recognized me and he was asking for my help. So in my next conscious moment, these four giant black guys were surrounding me singing Lean On Me. And yes, I could help them. And the five of us went and found the only piano at Seneca. It was in the gym. And we worked up this lean on me. While we're doing this, the sports director, the athletic director for the school, a guy named George Unsold. The Unsold family was legendary in Kentucky. His brother was Wesley Unsold, legend. Anyway, George Unsold comes out of his office and a guy named Gene Stickler 
comes out of his office. He was the drama guy. And the two of them put their heads together and they came to us and told us that they have a mandate. They had to tell us what a mandate meant. Their mandate was to improve racial relations at this school. And we're gonna start with you guys right here doing this. And from that was born this group, Unsold Supplied, the black athletes, Stickler provided the white kids from drama, and we put on assemblies. That is my memory of a little bit of healing. And by the way, after that day, I felt safe at my school for the first time. Years later, when Dave Bass died at his funeral, it's at the Jewish funeral home and all the usual Jewish community suspects were there to pay respects. But there was also this sizable contingent of African-American men who were there to pay respects to Dave Bass. Curtis Harris, the warehouse foreman at Louisville Wholesale Liquor, was there and he talked to me a little bit. And he told me that these were all men that Dave Bass had helped, that he had loaned money to, to help them with whatever they needed help with. And that his policy was, when it was time for them to pay this loan back, Dave Bass, long before there was such a phrase, instructed them to instead pay it forward. And I learned this about my grandfather at his funeral, and it was good to know. After all that amazing history, I really wanted to get a taste of what the Jewish community is like now. So we headed over to the Logan Street Market. My name is Sasha Chak, and we're in Louisville, Kentucky at Logan Street Market. Cold Smoke Bagels is my business here, and we do Jewish locks and bagels and Jewish uh, comfort food and nosh and appetizing and herring and bringing it to Louisville people. I love a lox and bagel. And in Louisville, you know, you could get it at one or two places, but it didn't focus on the lox. My spot in this big public market have this kind of small booth. And of course, the inspiration is from Russ and Daughters in New York with the subway tiles, the, the signs, pickles, herring, lox and nosh, the old Greek style New York, you know, coffee cups and the Manischewitz and the Kedem grape juice on the wall. You know, I'm trying to kind of recreate a look. And some people do like a double take, like some people walk past and they do this double take like, what? I'm, I'm back in New York. I mean, Jewish life in this town is good because, you know, especially my perception of it, living in the Highlands and the neighborhood that we're in, you know, we're 10 minute walk from three synagogues. You know, it feels very Jewish. Even though we're in Louisville, Kentucky, it's an area that to me resonates with Jewishness. So Jewish life here is good. Religiously, it's small, kosher is there, but it's not like it's gonna be in bigger cities. You're not gonna have such a big selection. So, you know, you kind of have to take what you can get. JCC is brand new, it was very nice. My kids love the pool. Things are changing. You know, there's new Orthodox families moving here. They're trying to build more Orthodox infrastructure to make it easier for religious families to live here. They built a big, big A roof, so now people carry in the area. And for some people, that's a game changer. So those are big, big changes. To be clear, the Jews in Louisville have put up an Eruv, which is a small symbolic boundary marker that allows observant Jews to use strollers and canes and carry things like house keys, tissues, and medication with them during Shabbat. While you find them in other heavily Jewish areas like New York, this is the only Erev in Kentucky, at least according to Wikipedia. 
Before we left the Logan Street Market, we let Sarah Wagner, CEO of the Louisville Jewish Federation and the JCC, give her pitch for Jewish life in Louisville. I think people who come to Louisville fall in love with it. I think we all know living here that people just don't know what they don't know. There are a lot of tight-knit people, a lot of tight-knit communities. There's a lot of opportunities. It's small enough to get to know each other and big enough that we can offer a lot. Um, but there's, there's really something special about this place. Always has been. There was also something special about Louisville's mayors. There was Jerry Abramson, who was known as mayor for life and served five terms. The city's new mayor is also Jewish. My name is Craig Greenberg, and I'm the mayor of Louisville. I've been the mayor for a whopping eight weeks or so. We moved to Louisville when I was in second grade, was my first grade here in Louisville. My sister was in fourth grade, and so I grew up in Louisville. It's, without a doubt, my home. Uh, my sister and I grew up here. We went to public schools. Uh, we went to Hebrew school back when it was on Tuesday and Thursday afternoons and Sunday schools. We were very active in the Jewish community. There is a strong cultural connection between many of the Jews in Louisville. And so while people maybe used to joke about knowing every Jewish person in town, uh, that's certainly not the case for me anymore, but maybe I'm one step removed, or maybe my wife knows him, or my kids knows him, or a friend knows him. Growing up, we had a very strong Jewish hospital, which ultimately now, after the sale of that hospital, has turned into an amazingly strong Jewish heritage fund for excellence, which gives back to the Jewish community and the medical community, the healthcare community. That's a proud Jewish institution in our community. The fact that we have a new Traeger Jewish Community Center is an amazing, important pillar of our Jewish community. And JCC has always been a hub of Jewish activity and really not just Jewish activity. I actually think there are probably more non-Jewish members than there are Jewish members of the JCC. But having this great new facility and more room to grow on their property, I think is very important. You know, then we have five, I believe five or six synagogues here in town of different sizes. Growing up Jewish today in Louisville, Kentucky is very different than growing up Jewish in, say, New York or Long Island, where I was originally born. I think one of the unique things about growing up Jewish in Louisville is, or being Jewish in Louisville, is you can have that strong connection with the Jewish community and you can be as involved as you want, but there's also a giant part of your life that is beyond the Jewish community. And that just makes life richer, to have more experiences, to know a, a more diverse group of individuals, to have different experiences. And I'm thrilled that my two boys uh, were able to grow up with a connection to the Jewish community here in Louisville and also having so many other experiences in this amazingly diverse city that we live in. Before we leave Louisville today, we need to step back in time. There's a detail we've been holding on to, and it weaves everything we've talked about together from where we started with Dr. Glogauer at the Filson Historical Society and the items Jonathan had donated there. There is one item that was intentionally not turned over to the Filson Historical Society. My son, whose name is Levi, was named after Saul Levi. My son Levi has his passport. Saul Levi was a prominent 
person in the Louisville community, and he happened to be Jewish. I believe he was the first Jew on a bank board in Louisville. He was never married. He had no family. He used his money and his influence to save European Jews before and during World War II. My father and his family were one of those families that Saul Levi saved. He brought them to Louisville. He employed them at, it was a dry goods company called the Gould Levi Company. So my father and his father and his uncles all worked at the Gould Levi Company because you had to have sponsors, you had to show you had a job. So Saul Levi was, and still is, important to our family. And it's the reason why we settled in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm thrilled that the Filson Historical Society curates and maintains beautifully a historical accounting of documents and photos and other items that tell that story so well. So without Saul Levi and without Dave Bass and Louisville Wholesale Liquors, who knows what would have become of the Louisville Jewish community or if Jonathan Wolf would have become the Jonathan Wolf. So who is the Jonathan Wolf? I left Louisville and moved to Los Angeles to pursue my career as a studio musician in Hollywood, mostly performing on other people's scores, TV shows, and records until I earned the title of full-time television composer. And then I composed for 75 primetime network TV series, including Seinfeld and Will and Grace. Yeah, it's not a stretch to say, Kentucky and Bourbon is responsible for the success of Seinfeld. We came to Kentucky looking for bourbon, and we found it, but we found so much more. History, tradition, harmony, bourbon. Mixing it all together. Special thanks to Matt Golden, Jill Golden, Connor O'Driscoll, Kevin Traeger, Caleb the Bartender, and Sarah Wagner of the Jewish Federation of Louisville who helped make this episode possible, as well as Neve Ellis, Elisa Bodner, Julie Platt, and Eric Fingerhut from the Jewish Federations of North America. Across the USA was created with support from the Jewish Federations of North America. The Jewish Federations of North America are the backbone of the organized Jewish community in the U.S. and Canada representing over 400 Jewish communities. They raise and distribute more than $2 billion annually through planned giving and endowment programs to build Jewish communities at home, in Israel, and around the world. 
Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by Mark Oppenheimer, Stephanie Butnick, and Liel Leibovitz. We're produced and edited by me, Josh Cross, with Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And our team includes Courtney Hazlett, Tanya Singer, Daron Rusquet, and administrative support from Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. Our Across the USA theme music is by Steve Barton. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Rabbinic supervision this week by Isaac Wolf Bernheim and Dr. Abby Glogauer. Shabbat Shalom, friends. Mm-hmm.